welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and today we welcome to the show Tanner Gervais and Audrey Peace Gervais to discuss the topic of running, from training to injuries and everything in between. Audrey is a health and physical education and French immersion teacher and coaches students in both cross-country and track and field. She is a brand ambassador for Arbonne International and has been running for over 10 years, completing race distances of 5K to the marathon level. She first fell in love with running while attending McMaster University and is currently training for her eighth half marathon. But first, as a mom, having given birth to her baby boy, Eddie, last December, who you might be able to hear in the background today. Tanner is a graduate of University of Toronto's physiotherapy program and practices out of Agility Physiotherapy in Ottawa. Always striving to better serve his patients, he has pursued multiple levels of postgraduate studies in manual therapy, acupuncture and dry needling, as well as functional movement screen certifications. Tanner has a wealth of experience with fractures, strained sprains, reconstructive surgeries, and degenerative conditions, helping patients alleviate dysfunction, optimize well-being, and get back to sport. Recreationally, Tanner is also an avid endurance athlete, notably competing in multiple Boston marathons, Ironman events, and various trail and ultra distance running events. And we have Eddie in the background who's bopping around on his uh, jolly jumper over there going crazy. So he's getting ready to become a runner himself. So we are pumped to have this power running couple on the podcast today. And maybe little Eddie will chime in from time to time too. So guys, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for coming. I know both of you for how many years now? I don't remember. Oh. Uh, I met you the year before we got married, so that was 2013. Okay. So six years. Okay, so it's been a little while. Tanner and I were together at the sports medicine clinic that is now called the Cleveland Clinic in Toronto. Yep. And over the years, I've known both of you are running, always pursuing something new, and constantly undergoing a lot of new education taking on new tools, trying out new things, and then changes in practice. So I'm going to start with the running background and ask you both, what drew each of you into the world of running? My first experience with running, I had a professor at McMaster University who was a big runner, Boston Marathoner, very fast and female. So kind of piqued my interest in running Uh, and she had posted about uh, the Franco run which takes place in Toronto every fall and it was a 5k so I decided that I was going to train for that and I did all of my training on the treadmill because I was so afraid to run outside. That's perfect. It (laughs) perfectly translates. Yeah, I did not want to be seen. I was so uh, shy and didn't feel like a runner. And then I I did that 5K without stopping, beat my goal, uh, which was a very conservative for me, 35 minutes. That's what my goal was. Uh, And Tanner ran it with me. And then after I completed that, I kept running on the treadmill eventually worked myself up to I think 15 kilometers still indoors (laughs) and then decided that I could run a half marathon and started training for a half marathon I'm gonna first point out that I've run some long distances Um, I was a better trail runner because it's just so entertaining and fun but 15k indoors I didn't know you'd gone that far. And like, that's mental training. That's not physical training. That is like pure mental commitment because me on a treadmill for more than an, no, you know what? I was about to say an hour and that's a lie. I can't do it. So good for you just on that side of things. And 
Tanner, it's my understanding that she actually is the person who got you into running. Is that correct? Yep, hundred percent. I uh, I used to just be a gym rat. I'd you know go and do weights and. I do my 30 minutes on the treadmill at 6.2, and uh, so yeah, Audrey, uh, she decided to to get into it, and I was like, well, you know, I could use a change, and thought I'd uh, train with her, and so. And you didn't want me to show you up. And yes, that's that's true. I didn't want you to show me up. So, so yeah, I guess it was what Ottawa half marathon. Yeah. That was kind of the the first big one that we uh, we got ready for, and you know, we did pretty much everything wrong that you can do in your training. And we suffered a lot when we were out there, but it both just flipped the switch and uh, we fell in love with it. And really from there, things just snowballed in terms of all kinds of other distances of races. Um, I kind of expanded out into triathlon for a while and then most recently into sort of trails and ultras. So, so it's just kind of evolved, I guess, over time. And I mean, I'm fortunate enough that I get to combine my passion with my profession. So I've been able to, uh, to service a lot of runners uh, when we were living in Toronto and now in Ottawa um, in terms of helping them with their running or their performance or injury management or anything. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's really changed our lives and really helped to improve us. And it's all thanks to me. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. That's fair. <laughs> We were very excited at the idea of having both of you guys on the podcast today because Freya comes from an endurance family. So she's been around runners her entire life. I think she started track in high school and has been running since she's about 20. Um, she doesn't run much anymore due to some injuries, but now she's coaching me on running. I'm doing my first 10K. Well, I guess second 10K. I did one back in undergrad with my sister, actually the Ottawa marathon weekend it was that one actually that i raised it was in may it was may exactly and she really wanted to do it and i was i'm playing a lot of sports at the time running probably 5k just randomly every now and then and so i ran that with her and that was a lot of fun but i would never really train for running and now freya has me doing a 10k with her family doing a what is it a group uh, triathlon a family triathlon Yes, we're doing a relay. A relay. <laughs> See, I don't even know these running He's terms. Learning the terminology. Exactly, I'm learning the terminologies. Usually I just pick <laughs> stuff up and put it down. But now I have to get into this running bit. And then we have a new mother on the show now who can talk about her running experience and how that has changed and a physiotherapist who deals with people who have injuries from running. So with that being said, what are some of the key injuries that you might see, Tanner, in runners? I, I would say a lot of it focuses on the lower extremities. I mean, running is a repetitive sport, so I mean, there's a lot of repetitive strain injuries that can come along with that. I'd say I'd see a lot of uh, Achilles tendon problems, uh, a lot of plantar fasciitis as well too, so kind of pain on the bottom of the foot. A lot of what is called runner's knee, but that's another term for what's called patellofemoral syndrome, which is weak bum. Yeah, and a weak yeah weak bum is a big component of that as well too. <laughs> Those would be kind of three of the the main ones that we'll see. But then we'll also see, you know, especially with uh, runners who are starting up, we'll see shin splints or certain muscle strains, or there's always the the fluky things that come in as well too, that, you know, someone does something to their hip or their back or something as well. So if I didn't have Freya and I was going to run a 10K, I would have just started running kind of as far as I could have. That kind of would have been my training strategy. It would have been just go out, run until you get tired, and then kind of go in next time, maybe try and run a little bit faster. And I feel like I wouldn't be alone on that island. I think a lot of people just go out and they're like, I'm going to start running. I need to get in shape. I want to do a 5K. And they just go and do that. So with these overuse injuries that you're seeing, are there any prevented, general preventative strategies that you could give to people to say, hey, if you're going to start running, maybe consider doing X, Y, Z before you start? 
Yeah. I think that's a, that's a way that a lot of people actually start running as well too, is it's just kind of just go out and see what can happen, um, which is not a bad way to start. But I think eventually, um, if you are getting a little bit more consistent with it, having a bit of a, a structured training plan is a good idea because you can't always go out and push the envelope every day because our bodies can't really handle that. There's going to be days that you're going to do a little bit more and days that you're going to do a little bit less. So especially for, you know, the newer runner, it, uh, I mean, there's a, a plethora of different training programs and things out there that, that you can look into. But I think it's it's recognizing that you can't always go out and, and push the envelope. I think the standard strategy is uh, to be running a couple of times during the week and maybe something longer on the weekends. And you follow the 10% rule, right? 10% increase in Every your week. mileage. Oh, oh yeah. Intensity. <laughs> yeah. It was like the 10% 10%. rule that's been around forever. <laughs> that one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of literature to support it, but I think it's no. just a, a safe way to progress. So basically you progress your mileage sort of 10% per week and every couple of weeks you'll kind of back off a little bit just for a little bit of physical and mental rest. So I think that's another, uh, another good strategy. And, and definitely when you're starting off as well too, is, is it's more just about time on your feet that, uh, you don't have to worry about the, you know, the fancy stuff like the speed work and the intervals and all that kind of stuff. It's just about going out and building that base, building up some endurance so that, you know, if you decide that in the future you want to focus a little bit more on performance or, or different things that you have something to draw off of. But uh, definitely at the beginning, it's it's that focus on frequency over intensity. So, you know, it's better to run four times a week for 20 minutes than it is to run two times a week for 40 minutes each like it's spreading out that stress a little bit so that your body can uh, can adapt to it we uh because you and i did that running uh running specialist course and i loved their approach of just doing one minute on one minute off because so many people get into running they look at the couch to 5k and they literally have deconditioned tissue specific to running and deconditioned oh sorry deconditioned that elastic component of yep. running so they get off the couch or out of the desk chair and so on and just get out and run and that program I think is four or five days a week but it's at, it's for longer hauls yep. but just the one minute on one minute off allows people to like tune into their bodies a little bit and never get into that like everything falls apart and they're trudging along kind of slow pace that can just train a really bad muscle pattern like it's just a heavy pattern so so with that said do you still see because when I'm retraining runners I still see a number of people go immediately to like the 10 minute on one minute off because that's a very popular uh, online model and it's taught by certain uh, running programs. Uh, Or I see people have followed something similar to a couch to 5K and they've just like gone full in for like, oh, well, I do 45 minutes and it's my second week running and I'm up to running 45 minutes three times a week. So again, that's a lot of volume when we talk about reps. Do you still see a high percentage of people coming into your practice who have embarked on that? Or are you seeing more people who are just kind of going by feel and by body awareness? I think it's a little bit of a mix. Is yet yeah, we'll definitely have have people who come in and and you know they're very receptive to a structured program that you know we can do one minute on, one minute off for X amount, and then 
you know, build that up uh, in terms of distance and then, you know, eventually switch to two minutes and then three minutes and four minutes and, and kind of go that way. But then we'll also have, you know, the weekend warriors who like to come in and they're like, yeah, I haven't run in six years and I'm just going to go out and bang out a 45 kilometer or, or 45 minute run, 45 kilometer maybe. 45 kilometer <laughs> says the ultra runner. <laughs> like to you, that sounds totally fine. Oh, yeah. I'm over here like, no, I hope he means minutes. That's not cool. <laughs> yeah. So I, th- I think we see a mixed bag. And I mean, I always, I always try to approach it that, you know, everyone's going to be different in terms of, of what they can handle. And really it's, it's all about stress adaptation is it's finding a tolerable level that your body can sustain and then just slowly building on that and just letting things, you know, kind of progress from there. But everyone's going to be different. You know, I'll give someone a five week program and some people are going to follow it to the letter and other people, it's going to take them eight weeks and some people it takes them two weeks. So I kind of, I kind of go based on the person and then, uh, and then we just kind of adapt it as we go. Now you both took up running in your own way. Audrey, you started on the treadmill predominantly and you worked up to a crazy distance that requires a lot of mental like machine tenacity, right? To stay on there for that long. And then, but Tanner, you alluded to having done things incorrectly for your first, uh, half marathon. Can you guys speak to what approaches well, you ultimately learn from them. Like I screwed up a lot as as a runner in early days, especially being in your early 20s. You just do what you want. And uh, when something hurts, you just wait a couple days and then you go back at it. <laughs> so what are some of the things that you feel you did incorrectly and which things would you have addressed had you known differently? I think when we started, we both used the beginner Hal Higdon running program, which is available online. It still is. I still think it's a great program. It's actually what I'm using now. But I think when we started, uh, we were living downtown Toronto and it was before we had discovered the trail systems, which are amazing. Our favorite sort of go-tos were the Don Valley Trail and the Waterfront Trail. But before we discovered those, we would head out on our runs and we would run pretty much down College Street (laughs) as far as we could go or as far as we needed to go based on what our training program said. So running like our 16K run, on there are a lot of stoplights. There's a lot of foot traffic. And then translating that into like our first half marathon where we didn't stop to walk or pause. So we were pretty flat for basically the second half of our race, both of us, because we were used to running on a street and stopping at stoplights. So I think that was like one of the biggest things we did. I think because we took a very safe approach to our first half marathon, we didn't deal with any injuries. We didn't have anything like that. And then I think one of the other things we didn't realize being the Ottawa half marathon being in May, it's usually really warm and you start training kind of February, maybe March. So we were really overdressed that day and it was hot and that took a toll and it usually takes a toll on Ottawa race weekend. <laughs> that race weekend, I, uh, my mom and brother went one year and then I went the following year and both years it went from averaging about 15 degrees and then it was 31 it was the first time that it had ever peaked that much. And you saw runners dropping right, left, and center because as much as you can talk about hydration and make sure you have your salts and make sure you have energy, if you've literally had zero adaptation to that. And then yeah. uh, we know quite a bit uh, research-wise now about heat and just that if you start 
in a hot environment having not done any work or movement yet at all your heart rate all your vital signs are already up like mm-hmm. your body thinks that you've already done 10k and now you have another 21 to go yeah. but you're just starting in reality so we yeah. saw a lot of medics out and a lot of people blacking out right left and center and the same thing happened in toronto when i i was like oh maybe toronto will be different that mm-hmm. weekend so i did the women's half marathon there nope yeah. <laughs> and after that i was like i'm i'm not racing till june that's it's okay a really, <laughs> it's a really tricky time of year to race because your training is in the winter and we've seen this I guess a few times now at the Boston Marathon where people are running because it's in it's the third Monday of April. Right. So Canadians, everyone is starting to train right at Christmas. Yeah. And if you're like Tanner and you don't like the treadmill and you can run outside in any conditions, <laughs> I did uh, he runs in the winter, it's freezing. And then the first year he ran Boston, I think it was 35 degrees Celsius. And it was a very random, super hot day. A lot of people didn't finish. There were a lot of health issues out on the course. And it's the same principle, right? Like if you're not used to running in that temperature. So we definitely encountered that in our first uh, half. And then I'd say the other sort of, maybe not mistake because we didn't get injured from it, but we took the training program. We ran exactly what was written down not really listening necessarily to I'm tired or I, you know, we were in our early twenties. So maybe we went out the night before and then Sunday long run have to get it done and you're starting dehydrate or whatever. So I think listening to your body and then also being a little bit flexible with your training plan is something we did not do in the beginning. I think even the fact too, that we just jumped into a half marathon distance like i mean that's a that's a substantial running distance uh coming from like you know from a 5k uh correct (laughs) so uh so i mean i think i don't know maybe we're a little naive in in our approach to it but uh i think we we did our homework for what we knew that we could to to prepare as well as we could you know finding a training program and and i mean we're the kind of people that you know we'll read the articles and and kind of the blogs and that kind of stuff and at least pick up a few tidbits and and test a few things out so so i i don't think we went into it like completely blind but yeah there's there was definitely a few things we could have tweaked and we've made significant changes to our training since then <laughs> yeah a few <laughs> I actually want to speak about speed for a second um, because we went on a few runs way back when we were at that course and we went with a friend who does Ironman. She's super speedy. And in that course, they looked at what type of runner you were in terms of how you struck the floor. (laughs) And at that time, that's when everyone was wearing the five finger shoes. Not everyone, but a lot of people were. And Tanner, you did. Yep. Yep. Been there, done that. And been there, done that, precisely. (laughs) And I remember they commented on the fact that you had really big fat pads on your heels. (laughs) That no, because you were a heel striker and a really loud one at that. For the listeners, if you run and you're really loud, you have to understand that that is not ideal running technique. You should be relatively quiet because that's a sign of you absorbing impact properly. And there's a pretension that occurs with your body prior to hitting the ground. And if you're hitting the ground really heavily, you are not reacting properly to the surface that you're on. That said though, 
the argument that was being made was that we are none of us are natural like heel strikers with an extended knee well above our center or well beyond our center of mass and we shouldn't run heavily and there you were running relatively heavily with a way bigger fat pad than anyone else in that room and you kind of stumped the instructors because they're like oh well that thing we said doesn't exist actually exists <laughs> how has your running changed since then uh i'd say pretty drastically um so i did i did run in the five fingers for years i had a lot of success with it and i mean i love them it you know just the the natural feel i mean even still heel striking and i mean i was lucky enough that i was able to adapt to that stress and build some wicked awesome fat pads but i found that the i found that the shoe market changed enough that i could still get that feel of sort of a very minimalist type of shoe but i can actually have some protection against basically modern day surfaces that we're running on so pavement and concrete and everything so i found that the running shoe industry kind of caught up and had that happy medium that we were able to uh, to step into and so i've kind of transitioned into different types of shoes i still like Freya alluded to as well is I still very much believe in that midfoot ish strike in terms of um, absorbing impact and kind of, you know, not letting the joints do all the work, but getting the muscles and the tendons involved so that, you know, there is a little bit of that shock absorption. So I definitely coach that with a lot of my athletes as well too, but I'm happy that, you know, there's more options now in the market that you don't have to go from the old traditional, you know, super motion control type of running shoe or to the other opposite end of the spectrum, basically running in a slipper essentially. Absolutely. There are so many more in the middle and even some of the companies like Mizuno or Brooks, like they've changed their toe box, which is so lovely to see. And like we got Dane in some topos. So we love wearing Vivos every day because they're barefoot. I don't have foot or shin problems, nor does Dane. We train all our lifting in them for our lifestyle. They're absolutely perfect. My feet like have had nerve damage. They function totally well no more pain but for running it's a very different like sometimes people forget they think barefoot must be better or they think barefoot's the worst thing in the world but now there's this neither of those statements are true but this massive gray zone is filled in by some great shoes so when we went to pick ones out for dane i was like oh my god this is awesome we actually have ones that'll fit your foot because there's so many shoes that back when i mean uh, right up until honestly the last like four years i feel like most toe boxes were so narrow unless you went with like a hoka or a, i raced newtons or you decide to do a five finger and now it's way better because not everyone should be in a zero drop yep Yep. Not everyone has that, like, depending on their foot type, they shouldn't, that's totally inappropriate, and they'll wind up with, like, shin splints or stress fractures or Achilles tendinopathies. Yeah, and we, uh, in the clinic, we deal a lot with, uh, it's the transition into those shoes as well, too, that people don't do properly, is that, you know, they're a trained 10K runner in a traditional shoe, and then, you know, they'll pop on the five fingers, and, you know, their cardiovascular fitness is there to go out and to run the same distances, but their feet haven't adapted to, uh, to the stress of basically running without that support and that cushioning. So, you know, these people will come in with stress fractures or plantar fasciitis or Achilles problems or any of these sort of lower leg issues that are prevalent in, uh, in running. And, uh, so oftentimes it's, it's almost, you know, coaching them or, or teaching them that, you know, you gotta, you gotta transition into these things. So I know from the course that we took before, one of the, the things that they told us was it's called the one minute more per training rule that basically if you're going out for say a 30 minute run and you're trying to transition into a more minimal shoe is that for 29 minutes, you basically 
run in your old shoe and for one minute you pop on your new shoes and then if that goes well the next time you go 28 minutes and two minutes now you know it gets a little crazy when you're running around holding on to two pairs of shoes but you know you can kind of structure your workout so that you can you know run around the block or something and and switch and uh and yeah so it's just a a nice safe gradual transition to get people used to it if if that's if that's what they want to do i don't force it on anyone there's a lot of other things that we can look to to improve uh, a person's running but if that's something that's of interest to them then we'll uh, we'll explore it we often draw attention to the shoes that people are not running in as well right because a lot of people just don't, they pay attention to their running shoe but they don't understand that what they're spending more of their weekend could actually be a little bit more problematic for their foot health now that said with regards to like running shoes and getting back into things have you noticed any changes since getting back into running since eddie's birth in terms of your approach in terms of your tissue tolerance in terms of what you felt you needed to maybe address first i think i was lucky and that i didn't really have any pelvic floor issues although i did a lot of research about it before late late pregnancy and then before having eddie just because obviously tanner's informed on it and there are some great pelvic floor physiotherapists out there that people do not access enough so i did not have an issue with that but if i had that would have totally been addressed first i think I took a long time off after having him and I couldn't run as much as I had hoped to run during pregnancy. I did a 10K trail run, my first and only (laughs) while pregnant because Tanner was doing an 80K trail run that day and I needed something to do to pass the time for at least an hour, (laughs) pretty much. It was just over an hour and that was in May and then shortly after that I would get cramping every time I would try to run and it was summer so it was warm so I really had to scrap running before halfway into my pregnancy which I hadn't planned and then after Eddie was born you know you hear the the typical like six weeks of recovery before you do anything and then it's almost like at this six week mark you're clear you can just you Perfect. know yeah you're good to go and I certainly did not feel ready to do anything at that point it was also winter so you know even walking on ice I was nervous so I really gave myself a lot of grace in turn like I doubled that basically and I was like 12 weeks I'll see how I feel and then I sort of started coming back to some exercise but not running didn't feel ready to run I am not the person who loves to run with extra weight on my body it's hard it's a lot like starting running as you know Dane if you're not if you haven't been running it's hard it is hard (laughs) and so tack on you know extra weight and it's even harder and when you're not getting adequate sleep and it's even harder so I gave myself a long time six months at least until I started tackling running again and then I did uh, you'll be happy to know the one minute on one minute off Uh, and I would really go out and do that for 12 minutes and then come home and be like that was embarrassing (laughs) that's how I felt right because I've because I've run marathons so doing one-to-ones for 12 minutes felt like so insignificant it requires checking our ego right like that's the hardest thing is is when we've been so accustomed to it is just checking our ego yeah yeah for sure so I I built up very slowly to running like three times a week Mm -hmm. 
And then really towards the end of July, so I had Eddie in December, end of July, I said, okay, I'm going to start training for a half marathon. So running four days a week, if I can, hopefully I can. And I'm running a lot of those runs now with a stroller. Yeah. And and this speaks to listening to your body. You know, every case is different. There are general recommendations out there for pregnancy for any population, but everyone's different. Every situation is going to be different. And it comes down to, like you said, it was just kind of check the ego and go out and do one minute off, one minute on, Mm -hmm. and just see how it responds. And it took you several more months than you anticipated. But that was right for you. So here you are, and now you're kind of ramping up for the half marathon and moving along. And to be completely honest, I'm five weeks into my training plan. And some days I still do five and ones, like five minutes running, one minute walking. I don't really have a time goal for this race other than to finish standing, (laughs) but I'm still not running any runs, all running. I'm taking walk breaks because that's what I need to do. That's what's right for your body. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, like that's how I started running was the one minute on one minute off for 12 minutes. I mean, it was very, very short and sweet and get out and get your body acclimated and stop. Yeah, we uh, put you on one minute on, one minute off, starting at eight rounds of intervals, then nine, then ten, and we changed surfaces with Dane. Like, we started trail for the first few, and then combination, pavement, and trail. Mm-hmm. And you guys have great trails here, which Amazing helps trails. so much. Yep. We thankfully live really close to the ones in Toronto, but ours don't take us quite as far as yours do here <laughs> in Ottawa. Yeah, ours, I think... Well, I know Tanner has run to Carlton Place and back. So if anyone wants to Google map that, it's pretty far. That's quite far. Uh, but I, yeah, our trails, our trail systems are extensive. And we bought our house within 0.2 miles of the Trans-Canada Trail on purpose because we love the trails so much here. Yeah. And so you guys alluded to this a little bit earlier and you just mentioned the trails again. So... For anybody out there who doesn't know Ottawa, Ottawa gets cold. It gets quite cold. And Audrey mentioned that Tanner has no problem training outside in any weather, but I think Audrey probably does not. You know, like she said, she'll go on the treadmill if it's negative 40 out there. I love the treadmill. She I ran the treadmill. on the treadmill today, and it was sunny and 20 degrees Celsius. Yeah, but this is also after you ran... For 10k with him in his stroller as well too Excellent. so all right so the context she's a machine <laughs> now can we just touch base on training in the winter and so for any people out there who like to run they're trying to start up running and then the winter hits what are some of the considerations for them and how can they make running outside in the winter time a little bit easier maybe I think, I mean, I know I try to stay away from the treadmill a lot, but I think it can be a very useful tool for a lot of people, especially when it's dangerous outside, like when there's freezing rain or, uh, you know, if the conditions are, are really nasty out there, then, you know, I'll check it at the door and I'll go down and I'll use the treadmill as well too. But I, I really feel like if you prepare for the weather, you're, you're usually pretty good to go. Oftentimes in the winter too, I mean, usually it's the off season for a lot of people. So speed work and a lot of the specifics and stuff with your your training don't necessarily have to be dialed in as much. So, you know, if you have to cut a run short or switch a route or, or do something a little bit different, that can usually be accomplished in the winter. I think there's a lot of good options in terms of shoes and grips and, you know, 
Gore-Tex stuff and everything that you can use to actually stay warm, even on like those minus 30 days as well too. I mean, yes, I'll still come home with, you know, icicles in my beard and like my <laughs> eyelids practically frozen shut, but it's, uh, I don't know. I find it's, it's one of those things like, I don't know, one of my favorite sayings is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I feel like training in those conditions, it just kind of hardens you a little bit that, you know, when you get into, uh, into anything else like in racing or, or that kind of stuff, you can draw on those experiences and really be like, you know what? I went out and, you know, I kicked butt out in that cold day and, uh, and, you know, I can do this and I can keep going. Well, I think if you want a perfect example of how training in the winter can really pay off is Krista Duchesne at the Boston Marathon a couple of years ago, who is a Canadian marathoner, Olympian mom, and she's a fantastic runner. She placed third at the Boston Marathon. The conditions, we were there that year. I was pregnant. Tanner was running it there was ice and sleet and very strong winds. I don't want to give a miles per hour, but, and she finished third. And I think her time was around two hours and 45 minutes, which if you know the Boston Marathon, typically the women are like 220 to 228, I would say. And a lot of the elite runners didn't finish or finished in a really slow time for them because of that. And I think that because of how she trains and where she trains and training in the winter mm-hmm. made all the difference. But this coming from the person who <laughs> does not like running outside in the winter. <laughs> oh, I get it. I don't like running outside in the winter and I done with cycling by Thanksgiving weekend because it goes to 10 degrees above zero, but the wind is enough that between the 10 degrees and the zero, like I get the rain nodes effect at 15 degrees while cycling on my bike if the wind is high. Um, but I will uh, I do agree wholeheartedly that sometimes dipping into those conditions can really harm you. And more importantly, it also gives you a really good advantage in terms of developing strategy because anything can happen in a race. And even last year doing the Whistler Grand Fondo, it was supposed to be beautiful out. My last training ride happened to be in like the densest fog I've ever seen in Southern Ontario. And then turns out that's the exact same thing that happened while I was on the mountain up Cyprus. And then I had to figure out how to descend and the temperature dropped by like 10 degrees. And now I'm like, okay, so my bike's shaking because I'm shaking <laughs> and how I need to figure this out. So it is better to sort of dip into that when you are still very much in a safe realm. I'm not saying go torture yourself and like go beyond your capacity, but it is kind of, it's good and healthy to push that comfort zone, especially if you're about to embark on a race that's, potentially going to go that route anyway like you can't go train in florida and then come back and do a spring race in ontario and hope that you're going to get that climate because you might get minus 20 or you might get plus 20 right and i think too like there are ways like tanner dresses for it goes and does it he gets it done i know that in the past you can't not run outside and then expect to be able to run outside whatever the weather conditions are so I know in the past like I would start either on the treadmill do half my run inside or do half my run outside knowing okay I'm coming inside to do the last half or you know pick and choose your days there not every day is minus 30 in a blizzard right like I know that's the stereotype of Canadian winter but there are some really lovely winter days that make for beautiful runs on yeah. fresh snow with low risk with yeah. low risk yeah. yeah yeah stay away from the frozen uh frozen rain days though <laughs> yep 
Yeah, you'll be having a yard sale with all your stuff. So Tanner, as far as your approach with treatment, how has it changed over the years versus when you first started? I think I'm a, I'm a bit more relaxed in terms of how I, I treat things. Is I think more in terms of movement than I think in terms of pathology as well. So, you know, someone can come in with, you know, I don't know, a peroneal tendinopathy or an Achilles problem or something. And, and, you know, that's, that's great information to know. I mean, they can have imaging reports and all that kind of stuff, but you know, ultimately I'm looking at how they function. I'm looking at how's their ankle flexibility, how's their, you know, hip strength, how's their core fire, how do these things work? Because ultimately if I go in and I fix those dysfunctions, that's going to clean up the pain with the person. And that's really going to clean up the injury. So I find that I'm doing a better job at getting to really the source of where the problems are coming from, not just treating the symptoms, but rather addressing the cause. So I think that, um, that, that, you know, schooling and everything does a, a fantastic job of prepping you with information about pathology and, and how to treat sort of different stages of, of healing and, and, you know, kind of injuries and progressions and exercises and everything as well. But I just find that, that this movement approach has really emerged and something that, that has really changed my practice for the better and just allowed me to, uh, to just, you know, really delve into the, into the why of something. You know, then when you can take that sort of holistic approach to their recovery and their rehab, I just find that, you know, you're you're fixing what's going on right now, but then you're also preventing it from coming back again. Mm -hmm. And I love to draw the analogy with a lot of runners. If, you know, they've seen someone else, I mean, you know, they can, someone else can treat the injury very well as well too, but I'll ask them, I'll say, you know, has anyone ever looked at how you run? And they'll be like, well, no, why, why would they do that? And so, you know, I'll, I'll put them on the treadmill or I'll, I'll get them to run and, you know, I'll kind of draw that, that analogy of, of, you know, like I can, I can fix what's going on here, but if we don't change how you move, the same thing's going to come back. It's, it's your motor pattern. It's how you're, how you're, you're sequencing these movements. Yeah. That's ultimately where things are coming from. So again, just kind of feeds into that, that holistic approach of, uh, of really getting to where the source of things are coming from. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. So if you have an injury that keeps recurring over and over from running, you should definitely seek out an expert who can look at your gait and analyze it. And I would say, don't go to drive to Ottawa. Come see see Tanner, drive to Toronto, come see Freya. Before we get into our, our final rapid fire questions, I just wanted to touch base quickly on the topic of breathing during running. Because when I started running, Freya basically told me to do two things. One was land softly. And the other one was breathe through your nose just breathe through your nose don't breathe through your mouth at all so i think we we had uh leo ryan on the show mm-hmm. who spoke about the different vent levels so vent level one is breathing in through the nose out through the nose and that was what freya said just use the vent level one mm-hmm. and if you are getting out of breath that's how you slow your pace until you can continue breathing through your nose and keep going so is this something that you guys, as you learned to run, is it something you thought about in the beginning? Because when I was young and I just ran, I breathed in and out through my mouth and got exhausted and it tasted like blood or like I was sucking on a battery. It was just not a good situation. And I actually made that comment when I came in for my 5K this morning. I'm like, I can run now and I don't come in feeling like I've just like swallowed my heart. It's excellent. So have you guys, is that a consideration that when you were learning to run that you considered breath? So no. And I am now very aware that I am a heavy mouth breather for my entire run. Like, I don't think I ever breathe in and out of my nose. Like, thinking to my run today, because I could hear myself huffing and puffing, I'm pretty sure it was all Mm -hmm. in and out of my mouth. 
and I, I don't always, I should, I should preface that and say I don't always huff and puff, but sometimes I do this, like, it's almost, it almost reminds me of labor, like two, two quick breaths in and one long breath out. And that works for me. So no, I have never considered how I breathe while running. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I really have much either. This is, no, this is good. Uh, I'm very excited that I asked this. Good. I've, uh, I've always been the, I've always taken the approach more of like rating of perceived exertion. So kind of, you know, like there's a, like a five to six out of 10 kind of run is something, you know, you could sustain for, you know, like an everyday pace and sevens pushing that sort of high end aerobic zone, eight, nine, maybe lactate threshold. So kind of thinking more in terms of the numbers as opposed to the breathing, but I would find my breathing would fall in line with that as well too. And kind of, you know, adjusting, say I have a, whatever, a tempo run to do and it's 35 degrees out versus when it's 12 degrees out. So, you know, kind of adjusting based more on that as opposed to my breathing. Cause I find my breathing would just kind of fall in suit with that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think when we started, I might've come up with like some stupid little system that like, if I closed my mouth and I could take three <laughs> nose breaths, I was running at a tempo intensity or like it, it, there was zero scientific basis for it. It was just kind of like me playing around and just kind of, again, trying to adjust my own basis. Well, I think too, you will often say, and I've heard this before, if you are running sort of like your easy run, you should be able to maintain a conversation. So if you're not talking breathing, some people know that like if I can carry on a conversation with someone next to me, then I'm running at, because Tanner does the rate of perceived exertion. Sometimes that's a little above my thinking at the time of a run. Uh, but he either but if you can carry on a conversation, that's a good sort of gauge of how how, how hard you're working. But what it made me think of with breathing, because I said that I could hear myself huffing and puffing today, I am not running with headphones right now, which is new for me. And I think that a lot of people, because they have headphones in, cannot hear themselves breathing. So it's kind of that, like they're disconnected from their body. Or foot strike. Or, or their foot strike they can't hear them so you can't hear yourself run you make noise when you run and I think that when you're listening to music you don't hear how you're breathing so it can throw off so that yeah part of the reason I should I should preface why I told Dane to breathe that way uh there are a few different reasons the first one is mouth breathing is a if you're just defaulting to that from the get-go you're stressing your system into its last available way to breathe and to start conditioning for something like running, brand new runner, we want intensity low. Yeah. Best way to keep intensity low, they should be able to breathe through their nose fully. Like if they are pushing to the point where they have to mouth breathe, that's basically, that should be a sprint. <laughs> yep. And it's beyond because we know that intensity is correlated with injuries, especially in new runners. So part of it was the conditioning aspect of it. And part of it is relating to oxygen, nitric oxide. If we're huffing and puffing through our mouth only, rather than any inhales through our nose, we're not actually, we're, we're actually increasing and encouraging vasoconstriction. So we're ramping our heart rate up when our effort is say at a six out of 10, but if we could keep it through our nose, we get a little bit more vasodilation. We can still get to six out of 
10, but that's actually going to be at a faster pace or we'll be able to go farther, whatever the parameter is that we're measuring it with. And then the other piece of it was, so part of it was measuring intensity. Part of it, it was how your body reacts to mouth breathing versus to nose breathing because mouth breathing in and out through the mouth is far more stressful. So it thinks that you're at the end of your rope, basically. That's where legs in a long run can feel like they've gone dead because they're just not receiving oxygen the same way. Whereas if you can always inhale through the nose, you're at least, you're able to control the other vital signs far better. And then um, one of the other pieces with it as well is just the stability component. So if we're keeping someone at an intensity where they can now tune in, so to your point about music, I discourage all runners from from listening to music uh, when they're starting to get back into running or or start running period I say so that they can pay attention to the engine when people say oh I need it as a distraction I'm like try to find joy in the process and even if it feels clunky you'll notice when it starts to feel smoother but if you've always distracted yourself with music you're not going to notice you're not going to hear your foot strike you will have no clue what your breathing was doing and you actually lose sense of being able to manage your vital signs so then when you're in heat you're actually in more trouble than the person who's without music and used to tuning into their own system so part of it was that as well and then it's also the the stability piece because although the research on it is a little bit all over the place every exhale we lose stability so if we're inhaling and exhaling through the mouth we're not as stable through our pelvis and through our low backs and then how that relates in running obviously is it's an impact sort of sport and if we're landing every time and we're always inhaling and exhaling through our mouth we're chronically unstable through the pelvis and low back we have a greater incidence of lower limb injuries or just low back injuries and then beyond that there's the chronic neck tension and my shoulder hurts after I run. It's like, because you're using all your accessory breathing tissues and your shoulders and neck are just jacked up. Your low back has less stability than it otherwise could have. And you ran at a higher intensity than you should have. And now we've got great like trifecta of how to get injured as a new runner. So you are setting Dane up for so much success well, you by see, reading <laughs> breathing through his nose. Dane's going to crush this race. So this is going to be, I'm, I'm going to come and watch this. I'm setting records, bro. <laughs> well, you see, I also know he doesn't know how to do anything other than go from zero to 90. So this is also knowing your client, right? Like there are certain people you can't say, go at like a really easy tempo that you could sustain for three hours. They're going to go, no, I'm just going to go all out no, <laughs> Ball to the wall. that's a great like that's a great way to temper your running and same thing with music like music ramps you up <laughs> so not only are you breathing heavy but you're also amped up because you have this amazing playlist <laughs> that is making you run too fast I think it has uh it has great application to trail running as well too because uh mm. like the trail setting is, is so much more dynamic that you need that extra stability and I mean pacing is irrelevant because terrain can change you know overnight if it you have a rainstorm like I mean uh, you're gonna have hills and uneven stuff and everything too so to really focus on the breathing to kind of you know keep yourself dialed in with all of that I think that's a huge tool for people it's our nice way of checking people but we were just curious about what you guys do because honestly like in the first say eight years that I raced like that was not a thing but when I started racing trails and when I started getting some cycling coaching we focused so much on breath and 
my performance went through the roof as a result and we could measure it because we had me hooked up to a heart rate monitor we had a moxion so we we're looking at oxygen and then we also had the power like the wattage and just by manipulating breathing it helped ramp it up also coming back from injury from a spine injury last year I did all my training I knew that stress was the key thing I needed to manage i.e my system didn't have much in the tank to recover from it and training is a stress so even though it was slow and it was sort of frustrating at times because especially on hills and the whole race was climbing I was like nope I'm not allowed to go to mouth breathing like I have to just stay at nose and I knew that if I stayed there I'd be able to recover from it because I wasn't like letting the adrenaline of the race or anything go beyond it but trails specifically I see that as a main fault all the time because I did mostly trails and I wore barefoot shoes because that's what I'm best in so I can feel the ground. Like, I don't mind feeling pebbles because I can hop off them and slippery surfaces. I just, I didn't fall because of it. But I do see a number of trail um, runners or have seen a number of trail runners make that mistake. They have sunglasses on, messes up your depth perception. They have music in one ear, messes up, like, is there someone behind you? Are they hearing the ground or in both ears? And yeah, the reaction time is, is changed. And in, in the trail specifically, it's like, that's really, is dicey. <laughs> so based on the look I just saw you guys give each other, which one of you runs with one earbud in? That would be Tanner. Yeah, I'm totally guilty. <laughs> Safety first, kids. Yep. <laughs> Safety first. Totally. <laughs> So now let's get into the final wrap-up question. So I know you guys know this one's coming. So what is the most impactful book you guys have read over the past year? I'm going to say it's not in the past year, but it's definitely the most impactful book I've read. It's uh, Finding Ultra by Rich Roll. It uh, completely changed our understanding of you know the capacities of the human body, really helped us delve into a whole foods plant-based diet, which we both follow. And just really expanded our minds to uh, to just what's out there and, awesome. and what's possible. And I know this is a fantastic podcast as well, but we also listen to Rich Roll's podcast, yeah. and uh, and he he brings on some really interesting guests and everything too. So it's just kind of been a it's been a jumping off point for us for a lot of different aspects of our life. Uh, so I was not aware that it was an impactful book. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was like a good book. <laughs> If it, it could have impacted you, maybe impacts Eddie when he yeah. goes to sleep at so night. So if we if we want to talk about Eddie, uh, I would say uh, Ten Little Fingers and Ten Little Toes is a huge hit here, and it's teaching about diversity uh, from a very young age. <laughs> so that that would be his his most impactful book of the past nine months, <laughs> from like a very fun read, but also exciting read, The Husband's Secret. Is this? It's the same author who did Big Little Lies, but I preferred that book over Big Little Lies, and I was a huge fan of that one too. So those would be my two, but they are not impactful. I just really, really loved reading them. They impacted your well-being, though. They made you happy. They did. <laughs> so for both of you, what is your non-negotiable self-care tool or daily habit? The daily is tricky since having a baby like that. We have had other guests say the exact same thing. (laughs) Things Uh, get turned upside down sometimes. Right. Because I said to Tanner, like right off the bat, I mouthed to him meditating. I don't got time for that. (laughs) But, but it is, it is something that you have to make, even though it's only 10 minutes when I say it, it seems silly. That used to be like our daily must have for self-care was meditating. Now for myself, I would say either sleep 
like as a new mom, like prioritizing sleep over even going for a run is really important. But meditating would be it. And I have to do it every day. <laughs> I think for me, it's it's some sort of activity during the day. It's whether it's running or biking or strength training or yoga or, or anything. I find that I really get, if I don't have time to sit down for 10 minutes of meditation, which I know is crazy as it sounds that you can't carve out 10 minutes in a day. Sometimes that's the way it is. Um, I find I get that effect out of the activity is it really just helps to ground me and really, I like to exercise in the morning. So I find it really sets the tone for the day. Mm-hmm. So it's really just moving, getting a little sweat on. I find it focuses me and it just really, uh, yeah, it just really starts the day off on the right foot. But you also bike and walk, bike or walk to work on purpose, which also gives you movement. Like that's part of your movement. So it doesn't have to be a workout. Like you work it into your day. Yep. Yeah. It could be any, any movement in any capacity. It's, (laughs) it's yeah. Dane's, Dane's giving me the fingers here. So (laughs) giving you the guns, giving me the guns. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's just getting out and especially being outside as well too. I find again, the whole cold winter stuff and everything too. I would rather just be outside and just experience, you know, this beautiful world that we have. Hey, we took a work break. We like to do this as best as we can at home, take a work break and go, uh, on a walk in the trails or play in the park. And today we did the same thing. We just like pulled over by the river cause you guys have such nice trails and then did cartwheels and handstands for a while. And then as we were walking away, I was like, okay, I feel like a large portion of society says you shouldn't do X, Y, Z after the age of <laughs> fill in the blank, but it actually was, you should, <laughs> but it's true that play and that outside time far surpasses, um, yeah, just even even being in the gym. Like there are days the other day, Dane did his deadlifts, and I was like, I don't need to be here. And he went outside and just sat in the park before his next client because it was that was exactly what was needed. So we love we love those. We might have even named the company after that. Ha- <laughs> hashtag play over thirty. <laughs> it helps, folks. So if you had five minutes with someone, what is one piece of advice you could give them to help them with their well being? Okay, so mine is going to be specifically for new moms and any moms, even though I'm not that experienced in motherhood yet, but it would be to listen to your instinct. It's great. And I guess that could apply to everything, but it's great to read all the books and read all the articles and get all the advice from everybody else. But like, what is your heart telling you? What is your head telling you? What is your baby telling you? Because ultimately we are all very unique individuals and all that advice is it's not one size fits all so specifically to the new moms out there (laughs) is yeah listen to your to yourself listen follow your instincts uh but i guess that does apply very broadly to everyone in any situation (laughs) even to how you recovered from your pregnancy before running again right like you gave yourself the time you waited the six weeks and then you're like i need more i need more there's no limit on that and even with some of my postnatal people we actually wait to introduce things until they have a an itch to do it again and I say that itch is your gut that's your intuition it's like if you have no desire other than like this somewhere like this self-imposed timeline of like it's four months postpartum therefore I must be accomplishing these three things Mm -hmm. that's not like that's logic taking over so I totally agree and you are a 
thriving example of that, right? Yeah, whatever is either it's self-imposed or you're imposing it on yourself because you see other people doing it on social media or, you know, wherever else you're looking for your information or just how you're, how you're spending your day. Yeah. It's great to see what, what works for other people, but ultimately it has to work for you. Mm-hmm. So don't force it. I think it's to, I don't know, I think it's to find a passion. Something that really lights a fire under your butt. And it might sound a little cliche, but uh, I mean, it could be, it could be activity. It could be, you know, cooking. It could be something, but it's just something that lights you up, that betters you, that betters those around you. um, And something that, you know, you can pass on and you can share. I know with Eddie, obviously things have changed like crazy in the past nine months, but I think Audrey and I try to set an example of passion with him in terms of, you know, taking care of ourselves, taking care of him, you know, love, compassion, sort of all the good things that we really want to foster in him that, you know, whatever he decides to do in the future, that, you know, there's going to be something out there that he's going to be able to do and to, and to, to thrive from. So, yeah, I think it's, it's just about finding, finding a passion and just, and just building on it. The only thing I would add is it doesn't have to look like something specific. So it doesn't have to look like a job or a sport. It can be anything. And when you find it, to do it unapologetically because it's for you. And sure, it benefits the people around you because it makes you a more awesome person. But it's for you. So it doesn't have to fit anyone else's mold. It's about what makes your heart happy. And I think you can also, uh, <laughs> we're, we're growing on each other here. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's also like, it can change as well too. I mean, you don't have to define yourself as something for the rest of your life or the rest of your career is that you can grow from an experience. Um, you know, say you start off as a runner and if running doesn't fill your cup anymore, you can look into other things or you're going to come across things with your running experience that are going to, uh, going to you know broaden your horizons and give you other opportunities to pursue so I think it's about about staying open-minded for that stuff as well too and and doing what makes you feel good we definitely uh, we couldn't agree more and uh we love being really good generalists after having competed and still competing in certain sports we really love the generalists like just explore there's always something else last but not least where can people find you rearing a child that would be mine yeah uh my current project is child (laughs) eddie you don't you don't have to give your home address baby yeah yeah that's where you can find me most days i am on instagram but it's private so unless you uh unless you know me that's you're not gonna find me anywhere (laughs) haha suckers (laughs) but thank you (laughs) that's the way it should be you're a teacher after all yeah yeah and i'm i'm kind of the same i mean i'm not a, i'm not a mom but i've i've really pulled back from social media i just found it wasn't uh it wasn't doing what i wanted to do with it so so i'm a little incognito now but you can find me at yeah so i work at agility physio uh in i guess it's technically we're in stetsville 
we're kind of on the border of Stittsville and Canada, but just in sort of west end of Ottawa. Uh, so I work there uh, during the week. So you can pop in, say hi, and, you know, we can chat about some stuff. And otherwise, you can find us on the Trans-Canada Trail most days. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Look for me. I'll be the, you know, guy with the long hair and the beard just running through the bush. And Audrey will be the one pushing the, the running stroller. <laughs> we, we stand out. <laughs> Yeah, and we, I mean, this is why we love having people like you on the podcast. Maybe you don't have a huge social media presence. You don't you don't have the megaphone to get your, your message and your advice out there. So just... You're busy living it. Exactly. You're living what we encourage people to live, right? You're taking care of yourselves. You're taking care of your son. And you're helping other people. You're a teacher. You're a physiotherapist. So thank you guys so, so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you for including Eddie, who is now at the table with us. Eddie, everything to he's, say? He's done such a great job. He has been great. Yeah, and he's reaching for the mic. He wants it, guys. As soon as he starts talking, you need to come back. And we'll do another one. <laughs> exactly. Thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll, we'll lump in Eddie next time. But again, yeah, thank you guys so much. And uh, good luck with uh, rearing this young man and with uh, both of your practices. And we hope to speak to you again sometime soon. Sounds good. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.